Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the Fantasy World Order Fantasy Baseball Podcast. I am Pat Donovan, riding solo tonight. Uh, I've got a pretty full show for you guys. I'm going to be running down the latest news from around the league. We actually do have some stuff to talk about. And I'm going to continue looking at the early mock drafts that we've been seeing. Just some sort of trends and then going through some additional hitters building upon our last episode. Um, that have ADPs that sort of jump out. So the big news that broke today, Mike Zanino and Guillermo Herrera, Heredia, excuse me, uh, were traded to Tampa for Malik Smith. We had some minor leaguers involved in the deal as well. As far as implica- implications go, I, I don't move Zanino at all. I, I do think a change of scenery might be a good thing for him. Different organization and approach might be able to make the average more palatable. Um, Smith in Seattle... Probably assures himself some playing time, possibly at the top of the lineup, given his on-base skills. Uh, we really don't know what that situation is going to look like, though, because they've come out and they've said that in Seattle they're going to, or at least they're considering a total teardown. I don't know if this hints at a complete teardown, because it strikes me as kind of a neutral sort of move. Obviously, I know Smith is cheaper than Zeno at this point, but I don't know. It doesn't strike me as a strict rebuilding kind of move. But in any event, Smith gets some leash. So I think he gets a slight upgrade moving from a crowded situation to a less crowded one. Uh, other players, it makes the playing time path a little clearer for Austin Meadows and Jake Bowers, depending on who and depending on who Tampa brings in this offseason. And those are two talented young players that I like, so uh, I'm eager to see them get the opportunities. As far as the Seattle teardown goes, I mean, that's been the big news from around the league. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know exactly to what level DePoto is going to turn around and start to unload assets. Uh, there was a quote from him the other day that said he was reimagining the roster. Uh, to me, that's less of a teardown and more sort of um, refocusing or, or retooling in terms of an approach rather than a total teardown, but we shall see. I mean, they have all sorts of pieces they can move. Uh, Segura, Hanniger, Paxton, uh, even Edwin Diaz has been floated as a potential trade piece. So we will have to see. And then they've got some more expensive pieces. Uh, D. Gordon, Robinson Cano. Maybe they pay down some money and they're able to unload those guys. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting offseason in Seattle to see where they go. And then following up on our last show, we talked about Lance McCullers uh, and whether or not he was going to pitch next year, what the situation was with his injury. Well, it's been confirmed now he's going to have Tommy John surgery. He's going to miss the entire 2019 season. So, I mean, for our take on what that means for the Astros staff, I would recommend you go back and listen to the last episode. I'm not going to go through the full analysis again, but long story short, we like Josh James and we like Colin McHugh. This really opens up the path for McHugh and for James uh, to seize roles in the rotation, and I think it's more likely now that Houston gets into the pitching game, um, whether it's bringing back Morton or Keuchel or bringing in another arm to supplement what they have in-house. So I've been sort of keeping an eye on Twitter with the First Pitch Arizona event going on. Unfortunately, we weren't able to get down there this year. We do hope to at some point in the future. Uh, But, you know, that's really an event where a lot of experts get together, start doing some mock drafts, live in-person mock drafts. And there's been a couple floating around on Twitter as well. And, you know, I sort of talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and I just wanted to bring it up again because, I mean, it's really the buzzworthy guys. You're talking about Acuna. You're talking about Vlad Jr., and Mondesi, and they are just rising up boards like crazy. I mean, 
I don't want to make it sound too insane because we are talking about you know seven or eight mock drafts in the in the early mock drafts run by Justin Mason, and then you're talking about one or two or three mock drafts that you see on Twitter. So you don't want to go too crazy about this information, but it's also under, it's also important to understand that. You know, this is really setting the template for the market. It's letting you know who the experts are going to like and who they're going to be hyping up. And then it's going to carry over, um, you know, once the draft season really starts to pick up. So if you really want to get ahead of the game, you really have to look at where these guys are going in these drafts and then start to, you know, extrapolate out and, and see where they're going to be going come March because you can't expect to get them at the prices that were set in the two early mocks because there's going to be helium here as more people start to pay attention to or shift their focus away from football and towards baseball. Um, so for me, you know, I had this exchange with Ralph Lischitz of Rasball on the baseball show that he co-hosts with Andy Singleton. And I just thought I would elaborate a little bit more on, you know, what I thought about those buzzworthy names so, I mean, I did discuss them earlier. I recommend you go back for a more in-depth discussion on them. Um, but of the first pitch Arizona draft boards I saw, I saw Acuna as high as four to Matt Modica. He's an excellent follow at CTM Baseball. Um, Vlad as high as a high second in a 15-teamer. And Mondesi go in the third round as pick 42. So, I mean, in that earlier show, I, I said that I expected... Mondesi's and Vlad's ADPs to rise beyond what we saw in the two early mocks. And I think we're already seeing it. The experts are excited and I expect the market to follow suit. Acuna, I don't think I said I expect him to rise, but now I'm going to go out and say it. Um, There's going to be someone in your room that's probably going to have a 95% projection on Acuna and want to take him in the first round. You know, even notoriously conservative steamer has Acuna as a 28-25, 278, 854 player. So, I mean, it's just a word of warning. If you want Ronald Acuna, you're going to have to pay to get him. You're not going to be able to sit at the back end of round two and pencil him in. It's just not the way that the board is going to break. You know, and that's not to say... I don't like Acuna because I really do. I recognize there's a world where Ronald Acuna probably challenges for a, the top spot in fantasy baseball. There is an outcome out there where that occurs. And you can't say that about every player. But much like with Vlad and Mondesi, I'm just not ready to take him as high as the market requires me. And on Vlad and Mondesi, it's the same thing. The experts, the buzz, the echo chamber, they're going to push their prices higher. Someone in most drafts is going to have a 90% level projection on those two players. And I I, I want to go back to Steamer, which had their projections come out, I believe it was about a week and a half ago, and they're available on Fangraphs. And that's, again, described as a very conservative projection system by most. Has Vlad Jr. leading the league in batting average in his rookie season? And has Mondesi with a 21 homer, 42 steal projection? So... That's not going to slow the market either on any on either of these guys. To some extent, this is this is somewhat subject to change because you know your rankings and your analysis is so much somewhat fluid at this time of year. But I know in the past when other experts have sort of gone 
ham over these types of players, these types of young players that are very early in their careers, these elite prospects. Um, I have always sort of taken a more conservative approach, so I seriously doubt I am going to have these players ranked in line with what the market is going to be. Uh, but this is less less about what I think about these players and more just a word of warning. If, if you're starting to think about how you want to construct your team and these are players that you really want to build around, you're not going to get them where you might have thought you would have been able to get them a few weeks ago. It's just it's not going to happen. Uh, the pre-draft machine is going to take these guys through the roof. And that was what my tweets were about, and I just wanted to elaborate on it here. Um, so we have some more hitters to discuss, and I'm going to kick it off with Freddie Freeman, who has an ADP from the two early mocks of 18.3. I really like Freddie Freeman, but I do find it a bit odd coming off a 23 homer season that Freeman is going this high. The two players that he's sandwiched between are a five-category producer and Christian Yelich, and then a high-end power bat in Aaron Judge. And it's not that Freddie Freeman isn't capable of returning to a 30-ish homer type season. He's only two years removed from that 34 homer season. and But last year, he maxed out in terms of games played and only hit 23. Now, he does run a little bit, and he's actually seen an uptick in that over the last couple of years. He's gone from 6 to 8 to 10 steals last year, which is a nice bonus. But, I mean, at 23, 10, 300... He sort of looks a lot like uh, a Michael Brantley or an Anthony Rendon type of player. And that's probably not a second-round player. The ADP is in the ballpark of where I actually have him ranked. I'm just reflecting that I was a little surprised that the market had him there. I thought they'd have him a bit lower, but I think with Acuna in town and the Braves on their way up and the year that first base just had, I, I think that those are all contributing factors to what's going on with Freeman and creating a situation where his good, not great year is not translating into a normal ADP decline. The steamer projection is good. 27 homers, 8 steals, 286, 884 in terms of OPS, and that's very similar to my own. I think you're buying locked-in production here, and perhaps he's not going to return value, but he's a pretty safe bet to finish inside the top 50. So there, there is some safety there with Freeman, I think. The hard contact looks great. It was career high. He sort of did the Votto-Rizzo thing that we talked about last week where there were more line drives, less fly balls. I'm hoping that he finds a middle ground, you know, raises it a little bit because in Atlanta it's a favorable ballpark for lefty power. So, I mean, even a slight uptick in terms of shifting a few percentage points towards fly balls could lead to additional homers. And, you know, get him up into that upper 20s, low 30s where you would really like him to be without taking too much from the average. And I'm willing to bet he's going to do that. I'm just surprised that I have to pay up to find out. Lorenzo Kane, 59.6 in terms of ADP. Kane has long been one of the most underappreciated baseball players in the league, period. Uh, never mind in terms of fantasy, but it can be said about the fantasy spectrum. Last year, 10 homers, 30 steals, 308, 90 runs, over 141 games played. It was a very nice package. Kane was extremely consistent, hitting near the top of Brewer's lineup all year. He sort of fluctuated between the top spot, the second spot, and the third spot in that lineup. 
Uh, he also got regular breathers, which was good for him. You know, he's a guy that has a history of soft tissue injuries. That kept him mostly healthy. And I expect that expect that to continue next year, given that the Brewers have very, very good depth. Uh, so I think they'll still rest him fairly regularly or whenever he's got a little nick to avoid it becoming something big. I've always thought that Kane could hit for more power if he elected to. His build, the bat of ball authority, always makes me think of a 2030-type season could come. Last year, though, he was on the ground a ton. 2.37 ground ball to fly ball ratio. That's the highest of his career. And that's why the homers were just at 10, despite a really favorable ballpark change. While Kane can be considered young 32 because he was a late starter to baseball, Kane is still at the point where he might start to slow down a little bit. Uh, His sprint score was above average, but not special, and it was down a little bit from the year prior. Brewers are also a highly competitive team. We saw it this year. They made it all the way to the NLCS. Uh, They could start to scale back the running a little bit for fear of running into outs. We saw that last year from the Astros. For what it's worth, Steamer has his steals going from 30 to 21. And the overall line, 14 homers, 21 steals, 283, 776 OPS, is a little lower than what I have for him, but it's in the ballpark. And, And I think that's where Steamer is getting that projection from is that Kane's going to stop running a little bit, and maybe he'll make up for it a little bit in the power once the ground ball to fly ball ratio goes back down with last year kind of being an outlier. But still, it's, when the steals go, they, they tend to go. So it is something that I'm being cautious about. So I'm, I'm not necessarily sold that Kane is in the decline phase, but he's close enough to it that I don't want to pay for 10 and have those stolen bases go away because while I believe the power is in there, I'm not sold it's going to come anymore because he moved further away from it last year. Um, and he also rose up about two rounds year over year. His 2017 ADP was 77 uh, from February 1st to April 1st in terms of when that ADP is being measured from, and that's from NFBC. He's become more expensive, and now he's not quite the bargain he once was. Although I should note that he finished 36th on ESPN's Player Raider, I don't always go by the ESPN player rater because I think it places a little bit too much weight on uh, steals and saves in terms of how their algorithm comes up with it. But it does point out the fact that even at a pick right around 60, if Kane puts together another very good year, a typical Lorenzo Kane season, there's still value in that pick here. It's just... I'm a little more cautious than I think the market is going to be on Lorenzo Cain. Okay, that shifts our focus to Joey Gallo with an ADP of 95.4. It's always very easy to dream on Joey Gallo, especially with the light tower power he has and some of the incremental improvements he's made in his contact rate. I know the upside is huge, but you need some serious average to absorb the drain on the batting average. You know, two 300 hitters with Gallo's 210 gets you back to approximately 270. But then you still need to carry the average through the later stages of the draft. And that's where the best average options tend to be empty and low upside elsewhere. I mean, even looking at Adam Dunn, right, who Gallo always gets compared to, Dunn was a career 237 hitter. If Gallo hit 237 in a season, you would be throwing him a parade. You would be thrilled with that. He was 165th on the ESPN Player Raider. And that's 
like 70 ticks above his ADP. I don't want to sound like a total detractor because I do think that Gallo can improve more. But the point is that you're already paying for the improvement, which is something I do not want to do at this point. If you want Chris Davis, pay up for Chris Davis. If you want Chris Davis and don't want to pay the Chris Davis price, I would recommend taking an alternative like Matt Olson or Max Muncy or another power hitter that just isn't going to completely crater your average. Okay, that brings us to Robinson Cano. Uh, He has an ADP of 125.3. Cano's year was obviously marred by suspension, but his sample provides us with a half season worth of results. So if you were to double it, He's got 20 homers, 88 runs, 90 RBIs, and a 300-plus average. Among qualifiers, there were 16 hitters that hit for 300 or better last year. That's it. There were five players in Major League Baseball that hit 20 or more home runs, had 85 runs, 85 RBI, and batted over 300. Among those, as you can probably imagine, were Scooter Jeanette and Anthony Rendon, Um, And they make adequate comps for Cano's production, along with Nicholas Castellanos, who just missed the cut by a few points of average. So, I mean, those are really your four-category guys without speed or excess power. And those hitters rank 23rd, 31st, 36th amongst hitters, and 41st, 53rd, and 63rd overall on the ESPN player rater. And, you know, it is possible Rendon kicks back up the steals. I don't want to make it sound like that's a foregone conclusion that that's gone. But that's a different argument for a different day. Just looking at what they did last year where they didn't run, that's where those guys finished. So suspension aside, Cano, pace-wise, put up a top 45 to 65 type year and is going 60 to 80 picks outside of it because he's simply another year older and was suspended. But, I mean, the suspension is over now. We even saw him come back. The underlying numbers look sound. The play discipline was excellent. 9% 9% walk rate to 13% K rate. Uh, the hard contact was over 40%. Healthy line drive rate. No real change in his batted ball mix from his heyday, uh, or at least even from recent years. So I, I don't see any kind of skills decline masking unwarranted production. And Steamer is with me on the power. It, it's got it for 23 homers, a little lower in the batting average, 282, 801 OPS, and 160 runs plus RBIs. Now, we don't know what the situation is going to be in Seattle or even if Cano will still be in Seattle. So the run production being a little light makes some sense. But, you know, I mean, even if he's low 20s homers with the 300 batting average, he's still going to be a very, very good asset at pick 125. I think this is simply a case of ageism for, for Cano in terms of why he's going that late. And, yeah, I mean, he's 36. He carries more average, excuse me, more average, more risk. But that's more than baked into this price. I I love this ADP. I'm probably going to own shares of him. So that shifts us to Ian Desmond going right next to Cano at 126.2. Making sense of Ian Desmond's 2018 is sort of difficult. You had a ground ball rate that remained very high, but his power was saved by a homer-to-fly ball rate that was the highest of his career by a significant margin. Despite having been an above-average Babbitt player for most of his career, Desmond posted the lowest of his career in a year in which he played all of his home games at Coors Field. That doesn't make a lot of sense. It's like the Twilight Zone. The guy that should not hit for power hits for power, and the guy who normally has a high Babbitt doesn't hit for a high Babbitt despite being 
in the most batter-friendly ballpark in Major League Baseball. Um, Desmond's speed score is unremarkable, but he ran at a good clip uh, to similar levels in line with his with his history. At 33, like with Kane, you know, you question how long that will keep up. And all of that is to say nothing of his discipline profile, which leaves a lot to be desire, desired, as does his swing strike rate. So, you know, I always wonder about the K rate with Desmond, although it's never really been that bad, um, simply because he struggles to make contact and he swings and misses a lot and he swings at a lot of bad pitches. Um, there's certainly a wide range of outcomes when it comes to Desmond, especially at this point in his career. He could be a 270-2020 guy and be a really nice value at this price. Or he could just as easily be a 225 hitter with 15 homers and 10 steals. So, I mean, in ranking Desmond, I'm pretty much aligned with the ADP. But I could tell you I'm unlikely to own Desmond unless I have a very secure base. He's a very volatile player. He's a very risky player. Now, the price reflects that. But if I've got a little excess risk at this point in the draft, I think I pass him over for a more secure asset. That'll move us to Nomar Mazzara, 143.9. It is sort of an inter- interesting selection in Mazzara, and that probably explains the ADP range. Mazzara put up the same middling season that he's done the last two years. Um, he's been right around 20 homers and right around 260. But this year, the journey was a little bit different. Mazzara had 15 homers across 91 games in the first half. That's approximately a 25 homer pace, and he had a 272 average, which is right around where this year's steamer projection has him. And I'm on board with that steamer projection. At that halfway point, or quasi-half, you know, the official halfway point, um, he got hurt with a thumb injury. But, you know, that would explain some of the decline that came in the first ha- in the second half. But those first half homers were supported by a 2.2 ground ball to fly ball rate. So were the first was the first half real? I don't know. Was the second half just simple regression? I don't know. Um, he just hit five homers. The fly ball percentage was actually up, which I think is a positive sign. And he only had a 225 average. The other thing of note with Mazzara is... He was a plus versus everything other than fastballs and was an overwhelming negative versus fastballs for the first time in his career. I doubt the bat speed is gone at such a young age, so growth versus the breaking stuff is very encouraging. And when you combine that with the fact that he hit more flies in the second half, I think maybe he's starting to realize that the flies will lead to the power. Now, the results weren't there in the second half, but maybe that's because of the thumb injury. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that you always want to keep your eye out for is an injury to explain poor performance. And that's what we had with Mazzara in the second half. So I think the first half is a little more real. I do think that if you would have kept hitting the ball at the ground, on the ground at that pace, the home run rate probably would have gone down in terms of pace. So it probably would have been like a 22, 23 homer guy with like a 270-something average um, had he been healthy. But... He also tried to put the ball in the air a little bit more in the second half. So if he tries to put the ball in the, in the air a little more, he might be like a 270, high 20s, maybe even 30 homers type guy. And that's a pretty decent value hitting in the middle of a lineup at 143. So Miguel Snow, 182.9. It was a bad year for Snow. He got sent down. He had sexual assaults, assault allegations levied against him. 
Uh, strikeout issues are not getting better. The contact will always be an issue for Sano. So the rock bottom floor is a real thing, and we saw it last year with him getting sent down. The pitch recognition actually took a big step back. His O-swing was flat while his Z-swing declined, meaning he was taking more strikes, which just... I mean, when you're when you're a, when you're a player that has a high strikeout rate, you know you you really want to see is that they're taking advantage of the pitches inside the zone, and Sano just was not doing that. Um, he has elite power, and unlike Joey Gallo, he has the ability to carry that strikeout rate because Sano can be a plus Babbitt guy. We've seen it before. Uh, you know, it's still a high anxiety road to travel with Sano. But at 182, the cost is not prohibitive. He is someone to monitor. Do the Twins commit to him? Or is he still on shaky ground? That could be the deciding factor when he's in the queue. Jeff McNeil, 194.9. I was a little surprised by this. I know McNeil ran a bit and put together an intriguing power speed season across all levels last year. I think he was 22 homers, 13 steals by my count. And the batting average is probably going to be a plus, given the fact that the 9% K rate is really, really good. Um, And he sort of looks like the second coming of Mets Daniel Murphy. I mean, in terms of his skills. At 26, he was a non-prospect. He took forever. uh, It took forever for the Mets to really commit to him in the short term. Um, I know top 200 isn't rich. But I would not be shocked if he's a utility guy as opposed to an MLB regular next year. I think it's a little strange that his ADP is higher than Joey Wendell when you're hoping Neil becomes Wendell. And Wendell actually has more positions than McNeil. But there is a good amount of variation in McNeil's price. High 128 in terms of pick, low 300. So it might depend on the room. He's a nice player and might have more value as a big leaguer than as a fantasy contributor. But in his favor, the Mets have stated that they're penciling him in as the everyday second baseman. Uh, Now, obviously, you know, that can change. And you don't really have that long of a leash when you're a 26-year-old non-prospect. But, I mean, in addition to Wendell, who I pointed out has kind of got a similar profile, Podcast favorite, Marcus Simeon, is going after him. Uh, The next guy we're going to talk about, Carlos Santana, is going after him. Wilson Ramos, who's one of the more appealing catching options, is going after him. And Angelton Simmons, who's a reasonable approximation of what you would expect from McNeil, uh, is going after him and has the shortstop eligibility, which is probably more desirable. And we've seen Simmons do it for two, two consecutive years now, where we've only seen McNeil do it for the span of about two months. Okay, so Carlos Santana, 196.6. I know I had Santana before the year last year, and the year was disappointing overall. 24 homers, around a 230 batting average. It just wasn't what you would expect. Everyone knows that Santana plays better in an OBP format, but I think the average should be higher. He was about 35 to 40 points off his career Babbitt. And I still think there's a 30-homer season in that bat in Philly. And the lineup around him is going to be pretty good um, and probably likely going to be improved. I mean, the rumors are that the Phillies are going to go out and sign one of the big free agents, uh, be it Harper or Machado. I would probably project him for about 27 or 28 homers and about a 250 batting average. 
And Santana may have added third base eligibility. Uh, he fell just short in 20-game formats, but in 10 or 15-game formats, he'll have it. Uh, Steamer is a hair behind me at 24 homers, 242, 814 OPS. So that's sort of the middle ground between my expectation and last year's results. I'm still in. I like the price a lot, especially considering he has dual eligibility in most leagues. The discipline has not eroded at all. In fact, he walked more than he struck out last year. And the park is still very favorable for his skill set, even if it didn't show up in 2018. So I think this is a nice buying opportunity on Santana and a player that can produce. And the run production should be pretty good. I mean, we don't know where he's going to hit in the lineup. Uh, it's very easy to see him as like a two-hitter, uh, given the fact that he's got the discipline that he has, he's got the on-base skills that he has, and you still want him to be able to drive runs in um, when the pop comes. But, you know, he could work as a five-hitter as well, and then you're looking at RBIs instead of runs. But I think the run production will be pretty good. So that shifts our focus to Joey Wendell, who we mentioned earlier at 225.6. He's similar to McNeil, in that Wendell was an afterthought after generating some buzz as the one-for-one one in the Brandon Moss deal a few years ago. In his first season with significant action, Wendell put together a near-four-win season with seven homers, 16 steals, and a 300 batting average. He's going to carry second base and third base eligibility in 20 games formats and adds shortstop and outfield in 10-game formats. The Babbitt up over 350 jumps out immediately. X-Stats gives Wendell about 20 points of regression from what would be expected. But even at 280, a 10-20 type player with widespread utility can, be, can play in most formats, especially when he will give you the average and some speed. And at the price. I mean, the price is obviously very attractive here. Um, other areas concerned are very similar to McNeil as well. If Wendell gets off to a slow start, Tampa's situation is sort of crowded. You could see him reduced to a non-everyday role and... Like with McNeil, it's not like Wendell is any sort of top-end, high-end prospect. So you wonder what kind of leash they'll have. And one advantage that McNeil does have over Wendell is, is that McNeil's situation at the moment is less crowded. In Tampa, they've got a lot of middle infield depth in the high minors and even on the current roster. I mean, if you're looking at Christian Arroyo, you're looking at Willie Adamas. Uh, it's very easy to see a path where uh, Daniel Robertson is another one. Uh, it's very easy to see a path where Wendell gets off to a slow start and gets Wally pipped out of his job. And McNeil, as currently constructed, it's really not a path for him to lose playing time unless the Mets go out and sign somebody that can play second base and will push him for playing time. Um, so one area where I think Wendell could improve his getting on base. He carries a relatively high 36.9% O-swing, despite just a 39.5% zone percentage. So pitchers are willing to let him chase, and he's been obliging. If Wendell could focus his efforts on seeing better pitches, he might be a legitimate 300 hitter, or even might be able to spike the power to like a 15-homer full-season level. But even with those negatives, I'm definitely in on Wendell in a daily format. If I can use him every everywhere but first or catcher, he'll almost certainly be a target of mine in deeper formats, especially where I'm carrying some risk at middle infield. You know, go back to Alberto Mondesi. Jonathan Villar is a player that I've been very outspoken that I like. Tim Anderson's another one. He's a good floor guy to have behind those guys, um, and he's a player that even if those players succeed, 
you can plug in at other spots and you know you lessen the amount that you have to rely on bench spots for hitters. Okay, that takes me to Ryan Braun at 260.4. This is going to be the last player I'm going to talk about tonight. Um, Braun's stock has collapsed. His line, 20 homers, 11 steals, 254, 313, 469 in 447 plate appearances last year. So you're looking at like a 25-15 type and a hitter that deserved much better than his 274 Babbitt. His X average per X stats is nearly 40 points higher. So he really should have had a batting average around 290. Now, I understand that Braun, even if healthy, is unlikely to see full-time playing time volume um, in an effort to keep him healthy and for Milwaukee to take advantage of its depth. But even with that, this is a serious age-related discount. He still hits the ball plenty hard. He's got the healthy line drive rate. He's got a strong homer-to-fly ball rate in a park that supports it. Even if the speed completely declined, right, he'd still be an approximation of what Matt Kemp was in 2018, and that was nearly a top 80 hitter. His ADP puts him as the 67th outfielder off the board. But if you give him a comparable number of steals to what he had last year, with the expected batting average improvement, Braun starts to look a lot like Eddie Rosario, 24 homers, 8 steals, 288, who was the 38th overall hitter. Even the recently released Steamer projections have Braun as a 24 homer, 13 steal, 265 hitter. And that's roughly Tommy Pham from last year, who was a top 40 hitter. There's certainly risk there, and I'll acknowledge that, but there's no such thing as a sure thing at 260. However, if Braun keeps his power speed and gets the career average Babbitt, he's a steal at this price. I, I love this price, and I will own him in every league I'm in if he's available this late because as I've laid out, it's just simple regression indicates that he will be a major profit if he plays the same amount as he did last year. Now, you might say there's a lot of ifs there, but I I think that Braun is a pretty good bet. So that's going to wrap it up for us tonight. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, We will be back next week. I believe Joe and I are going to take a look at pitcher ADPs. So we will see you next week. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick FWO. Thanks so much for listening.